Hi, and welcome back to Publisher Nation, episode two of what we call season two, the full slate of content leading up to Digital Book World 2020, taking place in September in Nashville, Tennessee, as well as a worldwide online event on September 16th. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based in Nashville, Tennessee. We are very pleased to have joining us today on an episode focused specifically on scholarly and academic publishing, two leaders from the field. And I'm going to start with Kate. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Introduce yourself. Tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Kate Neese Mason, and I have been working in digital publishing for just about 11 years, uh, seeing quite a bit of change. However, the last, you know, three to four months, 2020 has, I think, um, kind of rocked us all and put us into a new world. But I currently am the Southeast Account Manager for um, College Markets, Public Libraries, and K-12 Institutions for Springer Nature. Um, I handle licensing basically ebooks, journals, and databases to institutional librarians. And so I... I love what I do. I'm kind of a digital publishing enthusiast. You could talk about file formats all day, but I think we, um, you know, we're in a very unique time right now, uh, especially with this pandemic we're experiencing in the quarantine, but it has really fueled online learning um, and just, you know, the future of research um, in a scholarly perspective. And it sort of has a TBD to be written, but we are writing that right now. And I, I find that extremely exciting. Excellent. Thank you for that. And thank you for being part of the show. Of course. <laughs> Our next guest is Rod Elder of Virtue Sales. Rod, say hello. Yes. Hi, Bradley. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Rod. So take a minute. Tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Yeah, so I work for Virtue Sales. Uh, we set up uh, Virtue Sales in North America about 10 years ago, and uh, it's been uh, in the UK. We're actually our 20th anniversary this year, and we develop software for book publishers. And uh, one of our major segments is scholarly publishing. So a lot of university presses and also academic uh, publishers use um, our software to help manage their publishing processes <clears throat> to then make it available on platforms uh, like Kate uh, had actually uh, mentioned in her uh, intro. So, you know, for us, it's really um, helping <clears throat> the scholarly publishers, you know, manage their acquisitions and uh, track their intellectual property and know what they can and can't do with that. So, for example, can they actually make it available on a platform? Um, and that, that's becoming, you know, more and more important because, you know, um, as Kate mentioned, uh, online learning is, is increasing. And so a publisher um, needs to maximize what they can do with their IP and they need to know what they can and can't do with it. So, uh, you know, our software helps uh, manage that process. And uh, yeah, we're, we're just happy to be here and uh, talk through uh, what's happening at the moment. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. And uh, I would be remiss not to ask you about the webinar for scholarly publishing that Virtue Sales has coming up. Take a, take a minute, tell us all about that. 
Yeah, so we're conducting a webinar. It's a uh, director's roundtable um, for uh, university presses. Uh, it's got uh, Ellen Kadush from uh, NYU, plus uh, uh, Simon Ross from Manchester University Press and uh, Joel Kosiboom from Hawaii University Press. So they're going to be talking about, uh, you know, 2020, how it's been uh, going for them. Um, some interesting uh, facts have, have come out from those discussions and they'll be sharing those to just talk about, you know, the future and, and what they see and uh, what they've been doing to uh, survive 2020. Excellent. Yeah. And we'll, we will promote that um, in the email that goes out about this podcast. So Thank you for sharing that. That sounds like a, a great resource. So I want to start off. I got questions for both of y'all uh, that'll sort of frame this discussion, but I want to start off for whoever wants to take it. What is scholarly publishing? If somebody's listening to this, you know, they're familiar with libraries, they're familiar with universities, they're familiar with some of these things that go on, but how, how would you define scholarly publishing? Is, what is it that makes it unique um, within the landscape of publishing, maybe to other types of things? Any any thoughts on that? I think that'd be a good way for us to start. Sure, I can I can dive in here. Um, you know, personally, to me, scholarly publishing at its core is is very similar to general trade publishing in that it is a production workflow of taking content, vetting it, publishing, outputting it, and distributing it, disseminating it. However, in the scholarly context, you know, it's typically it's research based um, science STEM science, technical, engineering, medical, mathematical, um, as well as HSS, humanities and social sciences. And so it's taking, you know, that primary research, that discovery, that science that is often used to educate, but also create new discovery in the future. And, um, you know, it, it is that convoluted, um, you know, researcher life cycle workflow, and, and it kind of does go full circle. But the, the, and I think that's where the industry is actually out of flux right now. And the market is causing or demanding, um, you know, how is that research once it's published, disseminated? And I think it, it's a really unique time um, to actually contemplate those questions, especially as we're all, vir you know, virtual and working remotely. And some, you know, schools as well as organizations and businesses will be, you know, continuing to work remotely um, as we, you know, move forward past quarantine and the pandemic once that subsides but it's it's you know it's peer-reviewed typically um primary or secondary research that's used to you know educate inform and promote scientific discovery um or you know human hss discovery as well no that's right. great and, and and so well let me um let me just dovetail right off of that and just uh, stay with you kate and ask um you know, that was, that's a great definition, great sort of look into that and, and well-described. So what have you seen to be the biggest changes um, in, you know, maybe the particular markets you serve uh, within scholarly and academic publishing or the broader landscape with what this pandemic has brought? What's What's changed? What's what's different? What needs? <laughs> Faculty awareness is what immediately jumps to my mind. Um, I, I have to admit, I do wear another hat. Um, I am an executive MBA student. So not only am I a scholarly publisher, but I'm also my end user. <laughs> so I have experienced this pandemic um, from both 
from both ends. Um, for us in scholarly publishing, you know, our, our end users, yes, we may be, you know, working with librarians or the institutional administration, but that licensing of content is to benefit the end user, the researchers, the faculty, those who are making discovery. And so there's been a huge um, just national push. And, and, you know, we are unique. Every state does it every their own way. So 50 different times. But there's a huge push for affordable learning um, and reducing the cost of textbooks. And I'm a huge advocate of that. And so, you know, prior to the, the pandemic um, and the stay-at-home orders and quarantine, you know, one of the biggest obstacles that I have, you know, come across when visiting um, institutional libraries, my, my customers, um, you know, is... Is, is helping bridge that barrier where faculty understand that licensed content from the library can be used in course materials at no audit added cost to the student. So in essence, it is you know, free, it's included with tuition. Now every publisher has slightly different um, licensing terms. You know, for instance, Springer Nature, Taylor and Francis and, and several others, you know, when when they do have DRM free digital rights management um, free content that is either purchased um, on a continuing access basis or a perpetual basis by the library, that content is a is available for use in course materials. And so, you know, the what the age-old problem we all have is marketing, right? It's, everyone can produce and it's great if it comes out, but if nobody knows it's there, will it ever get used? And so it has been, um, you know, the second kind of component to that is the linchpin, which I think is is the technology platforms, um, such as, you know, Canvas, for instance. Through an LMS learning management system, if a faculty, you know, and they have to use this right now, at least in the state of Florida, um, you know, they have been remote, even during summer distance learning classes, you know, they have to load their syllabus by into the modules of whatever LMS system they may be using. But if the faculty link directly from that LMS integration to their institutional library holdings to content, that is directly traceable in regards to uh, proving ROI for the institution, as well as cost savings for students. And so, you know, I think that we're only going to see more of that, but it, it just makes sense. Um, you know, institutional libraries provide such value for, you know, not just this, the researchers on campus or um you know, those in science labs, when, when faculty kind of understand that, oh, they don't have to have a, a traditional textbook, they can pull a chapter here that's relevant to their course, or they could use eight chapters there, or this journal and their weekly, you know, discussion posts, I can't believe I'm saying that, but, um, you know, it's actually truly magical and it, it provides timely resources as well as vetted, you know, quality resources to students and those, you know, performing research um, at little to no cost. So it really does support that affordable learning movement we're experiencing. Um, and so we have a, a term I kind of like, but it, it's a AER as uh, kind of in tandem with OER, but it is, um, you know, affordable educational resources. And so at least for, you know, Springer Nature, any ebook, for instance, that is licensed by um, a library, an institutional library, um, that 
ebook is automatically eligible for um, a POD copy to be bought by the end user for $24.99, including shipping and uh, delivery. So if a faculty, you know, wants to use this text for the student, it is free and it, it's DRM free, so they could print it if they wanted um, to read. So it's free for the digital, but, you know, if they want that print, Book, that feeling of a textbook, then, you know, the cost is $24.99. And I think if, if the cost of a textbook never really went above that price point, you know, we probably wouldn't be having a lot of the conversations we're having today. But um, that that's an area that I find extremely exciting by this sort of forced to, to digital learning environment where we're all experiencing together. No, that's interesting. Yeah. So I appreciate you sharing all that. And I, I think that that opens up a, a large can of worms, uh, just how this <laughs> pandemic will impact colleges and universities, like the actual existence of these institutions. You know, I, I definitely believe that there's too many of them. Uh, that's a pretty widespread belief um, for, you know, there's economic evidence of that and uh, what this pandemic may end up doing to uh, cold, you know, cold the herd will be interesting to watch. I appreciate you sharing that. Rob, yeah. or Rod, I'm going to switch to you. Um, I want to ask you a similar sort of question. Um, with the pandemic, the publishers that you and Virtue Sales have been working with, what are some of the challenges that you've seen that they've had to deal with, um, with their remote working conditions? What are some of the things that the publishers that are your clients uh, some of the challenges they've had to deal with with, with regards to the pandemic and yeah. quarantine. Yeah. Um, so I think, um, you know, touching on uh, what Kate said about uh, scholarly publishing, the other side of, you know, that uh, journals and research-based is also, you know, <clears throat> they, they do topics that uh, potentially trade publishers won't actually touch. So they, they will look at things maybe more at their local level um, for research, um, and just history about things that maybe haven't been done. But scholarly publishing, where it also differs from uh, trade, is actually, um, so on one side, it's super fast on journals. You know, they're pumping out content. It's just like a continual. So, so some of our customers do journals and they do books. And the speed at which the content's actually produced is, you know, miles apart. You know, a, a scholarly book can take years and they actually contract someone to produce something. Um, and you know, we're on the journal side, it's really producing articles, content, pulling it all together, making it available on these uh, platforms, <clears throat> like Kate mentioned. So these, they're, they're, there's like, you know, both, you know, spectrums um, in terms of that. The challenge for scholarly publishing is really being able to um, track the content and be able to uh, work with people remotely. Um, a lot of our... Uh, you know, customers, um, you know, whether it be Hawaii, um, you know, they, they may be uh, funded by the university themselves. Uh, some of them are independent. So they are a university press linked to a university. Um, so some of them will sort of operate as a standalone business. Others will operate on grants. And so um, sometimes their reason and rationale for doing a book is different um it's not about making a profit all the time and so it's about really the um, content being produced now in saying that 
the challenges with that is that they don't always um, necessarily have uh, control over their funding. So some of the things is how much are they going to get for a budget next year um, in terms of their uh, publishing program, you know. And so it's it's a challenge. There's hiring freezes um, that a lot of them are uh, facing. And at the same time, they've still got a huge publishing uh, list that they're trying to output. So what we're, we're finding is um, they're having to do more with less people. Um, I think that's the, the you know, basic uh, uh, situation right now. And they don't know where they're going to get more people. And so one of the things is uh, publishing is notoriously slow at changing processes. They have the same meetings that they've had forever, um, you know, and, and they bring out their printed sheets of uh, acquisitions and statuses of projects. And what we're finding now is a lot of uh, publishers working remotely are actually uh, adopting um, process changes to make them much more efficient. Um, and so using, uh, just like online learning platforms, are actually using online software to help manage the publishing process. So uh, these are, you know, instead of touching something with production or a digital asset or um, sending metadata to Amazon or to um, various retailers in a manual process, they're trying to automate a lot of this so that they don't have um, to have people sort of just doing duplicate uh, tasks. So that's something that I think is um, you know, really important. They're trying to just improve their processes so they can keep producing the same number of uh, uh, publications each year with uh, less people. One of the things that intrigues me about university presses is how um, there's a couple of different models, and I don't think university press folks consider it this way, but this is sort of how I think about it, where you've got some university presses that are totally subsidized by their university. They're, they're a loss leader. They lose money. They're designed to lose money. Um, they're, you know, it's a marketing device, perhaps it's a, it, you know, they, they publish for prestige reasons, but the operations of the university press lose money. Then you got other ones where, uh, the operations of the university press just breaks even, you know, the, the charter is basically, look, we're going to make some money, but we're going to spend some money and we just need to be sort of cost neutral to our parent organization. And then you've got ones that make money and they're supposed to make money and the universities come to you know, expect them to make money now. And it's really interesting. I thought that was an interesting dynamic before all this pandemic stuff. I really think it's interesting now because, uh, there, you know, as I was just alluding to, there's going to be a lot of pressure certainly here in the United States on colleges and you're going to see, you know, some of them, go away uh, soon for a number of different reasons that sort of fall outside the purview of this. What are, what are your thoughts? I, I'm curious with virtue sales, um, you know, I would have assumptions I would make on this, but I'd love to just hear you talk about which ones are generally your best clients um, and which university presses, uh, what type out of the three I just described usually make their way to you and make best use of what virtue sales provides. Um. It's a good question, and uh, all our clients are uh, our, our best clients, and yes. uh, but they, they all they but they do have yeah, and but they do have different uh, mission statements, absolutely. And I think 
some of that will look at um, you know how important uh, uh, profit and loss uh, estimate is for example at an acquisition so when they're deciding what title to go with if they are you know really um, have a, a budget strain and they need to make um, uh, profitable uh, decisions that will influence the um, publications that they actually go forward with because you know there is a cost to producing you know good quality content and <clears throat> you know I think just because it's makes money doesn't necessarily mean that it's good content you know just in a certain thing it's it's really but so for us um you know it's the ones where they're trying to really <clears throat> they want to manage their their acquisition costs so like so how much will it cost to you know peer review to produce this book um how much will we have to pay the author do we have to pay them in advance when do we have to pay that how long will it take to do the um the uh, publication and then tracking that that whole process so every publisher has to do the same things that, that doesn't change um and it's just you know do they have you know uh, extra hands to pass the the work along or do they have to find a more automated fashion so you know any any publisher like our, our biggest customer is oxford university press and uh, you know our, our smallest uh, would probably be syracuse university press perhaps um and so they they all have to do the same thing and it's just that some have have more resources to to access than others um so you know but it's it's very uh, interesting but they all have to track permissions you know we, we're doing a, a project at the moment for uh, um, a big university press and their whole project is purely about tracking their rights um and they're they're not for us their biggest thing is they want to maximize their ip and their income that they get from ip so they want to know you know let's say for example someone wants to use a piece of work that they've published if it takes um, the licensing person at the university press days to try and undo a contract to find out what they can and can't do with a piece of content. <clears throat> you know, if they don't sell it for more than $5,000, they probably lost, started to lose money even looking at it. So being able to find information about content that they own, what they can and can't do it and making it accessible because that, that really does limit what publishers do. So all sorts of publishers are, are using this and, um, yeah, I think it's uh, interesting the different challenges that uh, each one has. It's funny that you would mention that as well. I remember being a, a, a student uh, in college uh, in Nashville, and um, the uh, the institution I was a uh, college student at. Um, I won't go into the whole story, but basically, um, I asked the university uh, at one point for the ability to use a particular image that was in a book that they had published. And guess how long it took them to give me the answer on whether I could use that or not. Forget the price, forget any yeah. economics of it. <laughs> yeah. how, long, how long it took for them to answer the question. It's probably, probably months. I'm going six months. Yeah, the answer is they never answered the question. Yeah. They, yeah. They, they could never figure it out. Yeah, who, who actually owned the rights to the image? Uh, and yeah. they tried actually quite a bit. They could never figure it out. They just said, "I'm sorry, we can't do it." I mean, the simple thing of that is just really about 
the workflow and if they don't have good workflows and they don't have things set up so you know what you want to have is information ready to hand you know the author gives you the rights that they've they've acquired what images they're using what they can and can't do with it but as a publisher if someone wants to reuse that content they need to be able to find that information immediately click on a button and say what can i do with this uh, page 22 is there anything that i can and can't do with that um, because someone wants to reuse it you know, if it takes them, if they have to go to a filing cabinet and get that contract, or even if they have to go through a contract, that's a problem. And and so making that information readily available, you know, because sometimes it's not a lot of money. It could be $100. So it needs to be really snappy and fast to find that info. Well, well yeah. And I'm glad you're helping them with that because uh, in this particular situation, this university has a person whose job this is. And even she couldn't, she she just said, I, I don't know. And I just thought that was one of the most atrocious things I'd ever seen. But that's a separate uh, separate story. Um, I want to close. This has done a good job of sort of painting a picture. It's what we wanted to do is paint a picture of sort of the current landscape of scholarly publishing. I want to close. And Kate, I'm going to start with you and then go to Rod. Uh, just by asking the question of um, tomorrow is July 1st. So we start in the second half of 2020. Um, what um, Give me one thing that uh, you either hope to see uh, in within the realm of scholarly publishing over the second half of the year or that you expect to see. I, well, I always like to start on hope, right? Positive. Um, I hope to see, you know, I guess the institutional administration embracing digital learning um, and really maximizing the value of existing resources that have already been licensed and available. Um, you know, spending additional funds when you already have content, they may not know they even have it is my point. So I, I hope there is more of a more presence of library resources in the classroom. Um, what I expect is, you know, I, I, I think the fall is unknown for, for a lot of institutions right now. Enrollment is a big question. Um, that's typically what, you know, how institutions are funded. Um, it's a big portion of their revenue. So even, and this is, you know, something I've learned from just being in the industry, but when, you know, there's a tuition freeze or, a, you know, a cut, that's taking operating budgets from the institution, which usually go faculty and libraries are the first affected. So I, I do anticipate, um, a, you know, there probably will be further cancellations of, of library and journal licensing deals to some extent. Um, the big deal, uh, University of California or the California state system, you know, has been pretty vocal about how they're approaching that there. So, you know, I think we're going to continue to see, you know, community engagement and sort of, um, you know, user-led industry pivots and movements. And I, I do think for the better, but I think, I do think, you know, it, it won't be BAU, that's for sure. Um, but it, it is, it's, it's TBD, TBD question mark. And anytime there's an unknown, you know, we have a chance to help create that known. But I, I do think there will be, you know, financial impacts from closures, consolidations, budget cuts, furloughs, faculty being laid off. Um, and I just hope everyone stays as healthy and, you know, safe as possible, I guess, during the fall, because it truly is an unknown. 
Sure. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for that. Rod, same question for you. Um, give me something that you uh, either hope to see or expect to see in the second half of 2020. Um, I mean, what was really interesting from a conversation I was having with a director recently was, um, you know, just what they were saying about how important their backlist is, actually. And it sort of along with uh, Kate, what she said about, you know, looking at the content that's already available. And um, I think a lot of them have all this this big bucket of information and, and uh, publications and, and data that they can use already. And they just need to be more efficient at using it. I think one of the other challenges is, um, as Kate alluded to, BAU business as usual is not going to be the same. So the way that content is adopted by universities is going to change. So they're not having the exhibits that they always went to and they, you know, showed their content off to um, faculty. So it's, it's how do uh, publishers reach out to people who are making decisions about what content they, their students are going to study and whether it's on a, on a platform um, and then how do they get that to that uh, um, end user, um, whether it's through a, a platform like Springer Nature Offer, um, you know, is it through audio? That's the thing is, you know, we lot a lot about oh, me personally, I'm a huge audio user. I consume audio, um, you know, probably uh, triple the amount I, I uh, have time to read because I can use it. So the thing is, like, some of the things which a lot of uh, publishers never used to look at, especially in scholarly, um, in terms of audio, is now what format are people consuming in? So I think it's just making sure they've got the rights to, to do different formats, but to them exploring um, new distribution options for content. So, you know, I think they're the main things. Uh, they've got the content. It's just how do they become better at, um, you know, sharing that out and disseminating that to um, the uh, end users? Excellent. Yeah, so that's great. Um, Kate, Rod, thank you both very, very much for being part of Publisher Nation, episode two of season two. We appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you having us and i enjoyed your commentary rodney i thought that was very well said yeah you too Kate. thank you very much <laughs> for publication season two episode two thank you for listening or watching if you're watching on youtube until next time bye all